Matthew 125 states this. It says, Joseph kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And I think there's no one here that has not heard the story of uh, the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2. For example, Luke 2, 7. It says, And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. We're all familiar with those stories. But the Gospel of John puts it differently. It does not tell of the baby in the manger. It doesn't tell of the shepherds abiding in the fields, watching their flocks by night. John presents more of a theological statement. Look at John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14. And it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a beautiful statement. Every time I see the words, and the word became flesh, I think, what a beautiful, incredible statement, rich with meaning. That's going to be our focus tonight, John 1.14. And we'll draw from this chapter, chapter 1 in, in particular. There's so much material here in chapter 1. It would take several sermons to cover all of this, but that's not our purpose tonight. This is going to be a short message, as we always do on this night. And I simply want to point out tr three truths concerning the word who was made flesh. Three truths concerning the Word who was made flesh. First of all, the identity of the Word. The identity of the Word. It says, and the Word became flesh. Now, who is the Word? Well, the first clue is in verse 1. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, since we are familiar with this text, we know from having seen this again and again, if we put together verse 1 with verse 14, we know that the Word is Jesus. We also know it from the context of chapter 1, verse 14. For example, look at verse 14. It says uh, at the end of that verse that the, Jesus, uh, the word was full of grace and truth, rather. Um, verse 17 says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That's the first time his name is actually mentioned in this chapter. So we know the word is Jesus. We can see that. But as we look further into the introductory verses in John chapter 1, we also find out the word is deity. The word is God in the flesh. Uh, and I want to point out four facts briefly concerning his deity. Fact number one, the word exists eternally. The word exists eternally. And by the way, we have notes I have uh, available tonight. If you haven't gotten those, there's somewhere, somewhere somebody out there is passing those notes out. But, and I appreciate Hope doing this. <clears throat> The word exists eternally. Look at verse 1 again. It says, in the beginning was the word. Now, that takes us back. The first three words of this book, this gospel, take us back to the first three words of another book in the Bible. That is the book of Genesis. In the beginning. And both of them speak of God. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God. And since God existed before uh, the universe, and he created the universe, and the word is equal with God, it also stands the reason that the word existed before creation as well. So we could say in the beginning God was already there. He was already there, and then he created the world. We could say in the beginning the word was already there. Look, at the, look what it says exactly. In the beginning was, notice the word was, was the word. That means he was continuously existing before the creation of the world. So what do we learn? We learn here the word is eternal. The Word, has, he's before all else. There was never a time when the Word was not. He's always been. 
He has no starting point. He always is. He's eternal. And that's the preexistent Christ. This is why Jesus could say, and I have these verses recorded on your sheet here. This is why Jesus could say in John 8, 58, Before Abraham was born, I am. Before he was born, I am. I am the Old Testament title for Yahweh, for the Lord. So you see the, the deity of Christ spoken of in a strong way. Verse 2 deliberately repeats what he said in verse 1. Look at verse 2. It says, he was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning with God. It's not that John wrote, run out, ran out of things to say. He wasn't trying to repeat himself because he couldn't figure out what to say next. He's doing this on purpose. He's trying to emphasize the point of Christ's eternal nature. In fact, verse 2 literally says this. It says in the Greek, this one, this one was in the beginning with God. Which one? The one mentioned in verse 1, the word. The word is the eternally existing Christ. Fact number two, not only does he exist eternally, fact number two, the word was with God, it says in verse one. The word was with God from eternity. Two things that we should consider here. Number one, the word and God in this reference are two separate persons. Two separate persons. God in verses one and two is referring to the Father. Look at verse 14. In the context, it says the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw his glory as of the only begotten from the Father. This glory came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father has explained him. So we have two mentioned here, the Father and the Son, or the Father and the Word. And because the Word was with the Father, that means there's two separate persons we're talking about here. Look at verse 32. To add to that, John, test, John the Baptist in verse 32 testified, and he said, I have seen the Spirit, now we're talking about the Holy Spirit, I've seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and it remained, he remained upon him, upon the Word, upon Jesus. Verse 33, John the Baptist says, I did not recognize the Messiah at first, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So we see that, that the, we, can, we see the Father the Son and the Spirit all partook of, of, of creation. They're all here. Uh, and so this is what we call the Trinity. Or we could summarize it this way, and I love the way, the way Wayne Grudem summarizes this. We could look at this in three ways. Number one, three points. God is in three persons. God is three persons. All right? Number two, each person is fully God. Number three, there is one God. So God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God, and that's a good explanation of the Trinity. Now, this is a great mystery, and many people have stumbled over this and refused to believe it to their detriment, but that's what the Scripture teaches. But our focus here in John 1 is on the fact that the Word existed eternally with the Father, and they're separate persons, yet they're of the same essence. Jesus could say in John 10:30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. So you have one essence, one entity, yet two persons. There's a second consideration here, and that is this phrase, the word was with God, also has the idea of active relationship. You can see this is a theological chapter in many ways. It has the idea of active relationship. Let's listen to this. The Father and the Word enjoy a perfectly harmonious relationship one with the other. Do you ever consider this part? They enjoy a perfectly harmonious relationship. 
They're in such close communion, with one with the other, the Father and the Son, close communion, loving each other, communing with each other, relating to each other in a perfect relationship. Now, here on earth, we see relationships broken all the time, don't we? That's what we see, but not, in, not with, with the Father and the Son, always a perfect relationship. How, how close are they? Jesus said in John 14, 31, listen to this statement. Jesus said this, that the world may know that I love the Father. I love the Father, therefore I do exactly what he commanded me to do. Why? Because I love the Father, that's why. And the Father could say of the Son, Matthew 3.13, This is my what? My beloved Son. Literally, the Son of my love, the Son whom I love, and whom I am well pleased. The Father and the Son are in, are in an intimate relationship, one with the other. So the Word was with God. Fact number three concerning the deity of Christ the word was God, John 1 says, John 1, 1. The word was God from eternity. Now, this is about as clear and concise as a statement you'll ever get in the scripture about the deity of Christ. But that doesn't stop those who hate this truth from twisting the scripture to make it mean something else. Like, for example, the New World Translation, Jehovah's Witnesses Bible. They say the word was a God, as you're probably familiar with here. Horrible translation. It's not the right translation. We have the right translation here. And uh, that's the, out of all, I believe I read somewhere, out of all the English translations there are, this is the only one that has the wrong translation here to this degree, the New World Translation, Jehovah's Witness Bible. Now, some people say, oh, it just means he merely possesses some, some qualities of divinity, just some of the qualities of divinity. You know, it's amazing to me that even though the scriptures are so straightforward on this doctrine, that people do everything in their power to deny the deity of Christ, the fact that he's a God in the flesh. They do everything. They can't stand, you know, throughout the centuries, especially in the early centuries, and we're going to see it again here. The doctrine of the person of Christ was attacked more than anything else, again and again attacked by unbelievers, by heretics. But the book of John, the whole gospel of John, hammers home the point again and again that Christ is God in the flesh. It's always emphasizing this point again and again. You think through the Gospel of John. Christ does seven signs that validate the fact that he's the Messiah, that he's God in the flesh. Uh, and eight, if you include the miracle that took place after the resurrection, the miracle of the fish. In addition to that, there are seven I am statements where Christ says I am. That is equating him with the God of the Old Testament, or God period of Old and New Testament. He says words like I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. How much clearer can it get? He says it again and again. Basically, in effect, I am God. And, he, and, he, and the, the boy, when he said that, the Jews were so angry, ready to stone him. Now, if we're honest, though, if we're honest, and we simply accept what John says in his book, about the fact that Christ is God in the flesh, we're going to reach the same conclusion that Thomas, the apostle, reached at the end of John when he said, finally, my Lord and my God. And he confessed the deity of Christ. So the word exists eternally. The word was with God. The word was God. Fact number four concerning the deity of Christ. The word is creator. Creator. Look at verse three. All things came into being through him, through the word. And apart... From him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Let me ask you a question. How many things came into being through Christ? 
Everything, all things, right? None exempted. This is so simple, right? It's not rocket science. Everything came into being through Christ. The Bible teaches that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all took part in creation, but the focus here in John 1 is on the Word, the creative, creative activity of the Word. Look at John 1.10. The Word was in the world, and the world was made through Him. It was made through Him. Once again, the heretics come along, and they say, oh, no, that can't be the case at all. And they even take it a step further by saying not only is Jesus not the Creator, He is a created being, they say, they tell us. So in the 4th century, a guy named Arius came along, and he said this, there was a time when he was not. There was a time when Christ was not. There was a time when Christ did not exist, is what Arius taught. And Arius also taught Christ, Christ was a created being. And that heresy is still alive in a well today. Jehovah's Witnesses teach the same thing to this day. But the Apostle John goes as far as to say this, apart from the word, nothing, not even one thing came into being, not even one thing that is coming to being. So when you think of the baby in the manger, that's what a lot of people think of at Christmas time, the baby in the manger. Think, uh, think this. This baby is the one through whom all things came into being. He's, he's God. So we looked at the identity of the word. It's Jesus. Secondly, the reason he is called the word. The reason he is called the word. Have you ever wondered why, why in the world does it say in John chapter 1, Jesus is the word? Why is he called the word there? What does that mean? Well, it's pretty obvious. A lot of people talk about Greek philosophy when you get to this point. Uh, I don't think John personally got his theology from Greek philosophy. It's pretty obvious that what John is teaching is rooted deeply in the Old Testament. It's very obvious, as a matter of fact. He begins his gospel with those familiar words in the beginning, taking us back to Genesis. And then he used the words in this, and Mike referred to this, and, and I'm glad he did this morning in John 1, 4, and 5. I'm not going to talk about that. In him was life. The life was the light of men. How Christ was the light shining in darkness. This chapter uses words like life and light and darkness. Also found in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Going back again to the Old Testament. Moses is mentioned in verse 17. The law is mentioned in verse 17. He keeps talking about the Old Testament. And what is the Old Testament but this? It's a written revelation of God. God revealed himself in the Old Testament. God spoke his word to the prophets, and the prophets spoke that same word to the people. And so God reveals himself through his word. Psalm 33, 6 says this, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. It's by his word that the heavens were made. Genesis 1, 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Hebrews 11, 3, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Word of God, instrumental in creation. Not only in creation, but throughout history, God speaks his word and reveals his mind again and again. How many times in the Bible do we see the words, thus says the Lord, again and again? God spoke through his word. He revealed himself through his word. D.A. Carson says this, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression. His powerful self-expression in creation and revelation and salvation. And John takes this idea, I believe, and applies it to the revelation of God's Son. He's the living word. We have the written word. We have the living word who is Christ. I love Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We read it this morning. 
Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 in your notes says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, God spoke long ago uh, through the prophets, right? In many portions, in many ways, in these last days, he speaks again. He has spoken to us, how? In his son, it says. He spoke through the prophets. He now speaks through his son. Christ is the living revelation of God. He's the living word. And when we, through his life and through his teaching, we can see that and through his flesh and blood reality on the earth, this is God in the flesh. Look at John chapter 1, verse 18. John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, the only begotten means, uh, in that phrase, in that reference means the one and only God, the unique God. And another case for his deity is right here. He's the, Christ is the only begotten God, it says, who's in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. He has explained him. The living word, who is Christ, has explained God. What a statement that is. We get our word, you've heard people throw around the word exegesis. You know, preachers like to throw around the word exegesis. They love that word. It just means interpretation. It means to explain something, to make something fully known. And when Jesus walked on earth, he spoke, his life spoke volumes about God. Everywhere he went, people knew this is, he's talking about God. He's living for God. His whole life is about God. The way he lived, the grace that he showed, the mercy he displayed, the love that he had, the judgments that he uttered out of his mouth, the teaching that he proclaimed, the miracles that he performed, all he did, all he said, gave people an understanding of who God is. He was always pointing people to God and the glory of God. It was as if his very life was saying, here's what God is like, embodying him in human flesh, in the person of Christ, the living word of God. God expressed himself through his written word, and God expresses himself through his living word to Christ. And then, finally, the mission of the word. We looked at the identity of the word, the reason he is called the word, and thirdly, the mission of the word. What was his mission? Why did he come? Verse 14, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. The word was made flesh, and that started in the manger in Bethlehem. What do we call that? We call that the incarnation. Heard the word incarnation? It just means God in human flesh. Incarnation, God in human flesh. And once again, in early church history, another heresy arose about the person of Christ. And they, somebody said, oh, he didn't really appear. He didn't really come to earth. He just appeared to be a human. He just looked like a human. He appeared to be so, but he really wasn't a human being. It's ridiculous. Now, the Bible says he actually came to earth as a human being. He was fully God and fully man. Now, let's look a little bit about, let's look a little at the humanity of Christ. What did Christ experience on earth? And you can go with me through the scripture as we, as we do this. Number one, he became weary. Look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 3. He became weary. John 4, 3. Jesus left Judea, and he went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was, was there. So Jesus, being what? Being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. He got tired. Jesus walked for miles. He went from place to place. He traveled everywhere he went, walked, walked everywhere he went. 
proclaiming the truth. He got really tired. This word means he, was, he grew weary to the point of exhaustion even. That's what people do. They get tired. That's what he did as a real human being. Look at John 4, 7. He grew thirsty. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Jesus, why did he ask for a drink? He got thirsty. That's why. He was thirsty. He needed something to drink, just like we get thirsty. We need something to drink. Remember on the cross, he said, I thirst even. Also, he expressed emotions. Look, go to John chapter 11. John 11. He expressed all kinds of emotions, joy, righteous indignation. Uh, and here, sadness. We're at the grave of Lazarus. His friend Lazarus has died. Look at John eleven thirty three. Notice the depth of his emotions. John eleven thirty three. When Jesus therefore saw Mary weeping, that's the sister of Lazarus, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Why? Because that's what human beings do. They get deeply spirit. Now, Jesus never sinned. He never sinned, but he was perfectly 100% human. Verse 34, and they said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Look at verse 35. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. This is the, the compassion of Christ coming out in his tears, weeping. Lazarus had died. Everyone was crying. And we see the depths of human emotions that Christ experienced as a man. Not only that, finally, we'll look at, he bled. Go to John 19. We can look at many verses here. John 19, he bled. John 19:34. This is after his death on the cross. It says, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. What would happen to you and I if we were pierced with a spear? We would bleed. That's what Christ did. Human, appeared to be human only? No, an actual human being, truly man. The time that Jesus spent on earth is called the time of his humiliation. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says that Jesus, think about these words. We read these again and again. Jesus took on the, the form of a bondservant. He took on the form of a slave. He was made in the likeness of men, just like a man, being found in an appearance as a man, not appearance only, an actual man, but it says, that, it says this to describe his humanity. He humbled himself. He humbled him, his humiliation by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was a real man who died on a real cross for real sinners. Question, does that mean he gave up his deity? When he was on earth, did he give up being God? Did he give up being deity? In the incarnation, did he become something less than God? The answer is a resounding no, definitely not. The entire Gospel of John defends his deity again and again. This is a great mystery. And none of us can ever fully explain this, but I want to give you an illustration that I find very helpful. And I heard this. I, I didn't hear this. I got this from Bruce Ware. Bruce Ware teaches at Southern Seminary. This is such a great illustration. Listen to this. Think about this illustration in relationship to what we're talking about. Imagine you wanted to buy a new car. You think this is, this is already a lame illustration, right? It's really not. Imagine you wanted to buy a new car. You go to the car lot, the showroom, and you see a brand-new Mercedes-Benz in that, in that showroom. Beautiful, beyond description. The car seems to glow. You look at it, and you think, man, what a beautiful car this is. It's sparkling, and the salesman, desperate to sell a car, somehow loses his mind temporarily and allows you to drive this car off the showroom lot. And you say, you take the opportunity. Unfortunately, it's been raining for several days. 
and they're in the country, they're, you're driving in country roads, there's mud all over the place, and you drive down the road. What happens? Mud gets splattered all over this beautiful Mercedes, brand new Mercedes Benz, and it's all over the car, and needless to say, when you return the car, the salesman is outraged. What's happened? The car no longer sparkles due to the mud and the gook all over it. What's happened? Listen to this. By adding, by adding a coat of mud to the car, we have concealed the luster and the beauty of that car. By adding a coat of mud to the car, we have veiled what was there. We, we have covered it, its glory, its shine, its brilliance. Is it still the original Mercedes-Benz you drove away? It's the same car, right? Same thing. But the luster does not show. Now, all illustrations break down at some point. I know that. But you get the point. Jesus displayed the glory of God on earth. But, not, but his full shining glory was veiled or concealed by his humanity. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He never told a lie. He never had a bad thought, never had a wrong motive, nothing, none of that at all. And yet his full shining glory was veiled by human flesh. That is why Jesus prays in John 17, 5, in his high priestly prayer. He says this, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I want to be glorified again like that. John Calvin also speaks to this issue. Sorry, I don't have the PowerPoint. I know I've got to become a PowerPoint guy. John, John Calvin says this. Listen to this great statement. Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead. In other words, Christ could not give up his deity. He couldn't do it. He couldn't give up the fact that he was God, but he kept it concealed, kept it hidden, that it might not be seen under the weakness of the flesh, Hence, he laid aside his glory in the view of men. How do you lay aside his glory? Not by lessening his glory, not by lessening his deity, but by concealing it. You see, his humanity was concealed, concealed his full glory, his full blazing glory, or else everybody would have died that saw him probably. I love the words of Charles Wesley in that Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We just sang that song. I love the phrase that goes like this. It says of Jesus, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hell the incarnate deity. He's veiled in flesh. You can see God in Christ, but he's veiled in that human flesh. And yet we want to give him the glory, hell the incarnate deity. So John says in John 1.14, we saw his glory, yes, as of the only begotten from the Father. But John 17 says, Father, restore to me that original glory I had with you. He is the only begotten God, but it was a glory concealed by human flesh. Jesus did not give up his deity. He's fully God and fully man. John 1.14, he dwelt among us, it says. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. The word means he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. We're meant to call, recall the reference in the Old Testament to the tabernacle where it says God will dwell among his people. Jesus in human flesh, in a more personal way, dwelt as God in the earth. So the word is made flesh and dwelt among us. Is that it? Is that all that happened? Well, read the Gospel of John, and we know what, what happens. We know that the Word is made flesh so he could go to the cross, die for sinners, be resurrected again the third day, and John tells that story throughout his Gospel. Go to John chapter 1, verse 29. Verse 29. This is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. John the Baptist talking in verse 29. The next day... John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is none other than the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I believe John is the only person to use this exact title in his writings of Christ, as he calls him the Lamb of God, once again drawing from what? The Old Testament. He keeps doing this the whole time. You read about, what do you read about in the Old Testament? Sacrifices, animal sacrifices, like lambs being slain for sin. Forgiveness of sin is on the basis of a slain sacrifice. There must be a sacrifice in order for there to be forgiveness. And so we read of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament of the Passover lamb in Exodus and how they had to slay the Passover lamb and had to put the blood on the doors and the lentils, the doorposts and the lentils, lest judgment come their way. And we read in Isaiah 53 of the prophecy of the Messiah who would be oppressed and afflicted and yet not open his mouth in response at all to anything he was, he was going through. Isaiah 53.7 says, Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. It goes on to say in that chapter, he will bear their iniquities, he'll bear their sins. And John draws upon this concept in the Old Testament and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me ask you a question. Does that mean that everyone in the world is going to be saved? Is that, is that what it means? He says he takes away the sin of the world. Is everybody going to be saved in the world? The answer is no. Look at John chapter 1, verse 11. It says that the word, or Christ, came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Can you imagine that? His own people rejected him. But, however, the good news is, as many as received him, to them, to those people, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of a, a heritage or a religious heritage or their parents, not of, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, salvations of God completely. The Lord will save everyone in the world who comes to him by faith and acknowledges their sin and trusts him by faith and receives him as their savior. These people are going to be truly born of God. That's who he's going to save. Will he save everybody in the world? No. He will save those who come to him and say, I'm a sinner, Lord. I've sinned and I... I, give, I repent of my sin, I turn from my sin, and I turn to you and trust you as my Lord and Savior. You know, we have a, a bigger crowd than normal tonight. Maybe there's somebody here who needs to receive Christ as Lord, who needs to come to him and acknowledge their sin before him, who needs a Savior, your eternal soul's on the line. If you do, if you're in that case, come talk to us after this service tonight. We'll be glad to talk to you. So who is the word? It's Jesus, God in the flesh. Why is he called the Word? Because God speaks through him in these last days. What was his mission? To become God in the flesh, to become a man. At the same time, fully God, fully man. He came to take away the sin of the world for those who trust in him. Sadly, many people only know of, uh, of the baby in the manger at this time of the year, but he's so much more, so much more. Read the Gospel of John to find out he's God come to earth in human flesh. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word again, thankful that you've given it to us, thankful that you've revealed it to us, Lord, thankful for the good news that Christ can be our Savior. We pray today for those who, know, who need you as your Savior. We pray for their salvation. We pray for us who do know you, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Help us to live for you and glorify you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.